Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we open the word together now this morning and ask for your spirit to help us to be good listeners, not those that merely listen and then forget and thus bring condemnation on ourselves, but let us be those who listen and heed and do. Strengthen us in the inner man through your spirit, Father, to pursue Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Open your Bibles up, beloved, to the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter five. And as was mentioned, this is the sixth and final message in this entire series, Biblical Authority and Submission. I guess, no, actually, this would make it the 10th message in the series, but the sixth and final message with regard to the role of the husband. So we have been looking now for quite a while at Ephesians in the fifth chapter and beginning in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. I thought it would be just good to go ahead and read that for you as we start out together this morning. So Ephesians chapter 5 and beginning in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands. Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies." He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Throughout the history of the church, beloved, God has raised up gifted men. And they have become great preachers. And it is through their preaching that God has transformed his church and society through the great and powerful gospel preaching of these men whom he has raised up. There are many, of course, when you ask a preacher to make a list of their favorite preachers, it certainly would uh, cause some interesting discussions But just a few to remind you of in terms of the great preachers of history. 
In the fourth century, the Archbishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, known to the people of his day as Golden Mouthed, was one of the great preachers of antiquity. Certainly, as we fast forward to the period of the Reformation, we think of Martin Luther and his powerful preaching and how it transformed Germany and beyond that recovered the gospel of grace. We think about John Wesley, who traveled hundreds of thousands of miles on horseback preaching the gospel all over England. We're reminded of the ministry of George Whitfield, powerful evangelist, both in Europe, England, and certainly in America. Or the great American preacher Jonathan Edwards, who had such a transformational effect on colonial America. Or the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, for whom people would flock to hear his messages. Or certainly the great English preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the 20th century, who again powerfully preached the word of God from London for decades. These men were truly great preachers. But as we will see this morning, if you are a husband, then you are a preacher. If you are a husband, then you are a preacher. You have been raised up by God to proclaim the glory of Christ and his church. And you do your preaching by how you conduct yourself in your marriage. We are back for this final message to this great passage. And in it, we have said over and over again that we can find 14 characteristics, 14 characteristics of a husband's authority that we want to look at so that we might understand them, appreciate them, and exercise them in a Christ-honoring fashion in our homes and in our marriages. What I'd like to do as we begin here, this final message, is to briefly summarize the five preceding messages. And I do that because it, it helps us kind of capture it all and keep it in the front of our mind as we finish up together, but also that if you have missed one or more of these prior messages, then I hope that it would entice you to go back and, and listen. So I'm not going to re-preach them all, but I'm, but I'm going to give you the, 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 the sine qua non, the, 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 the jewel, the nugget of each of these prior passages or messages. So here they are, the 14 characteristics. We began here with number one. A husband's authority is unavoidable. That was the first. A husband's authority is unavoidable. And what we noted is here in verse 23 where Paul says the husband is the head of his wife, a, a statement of reality. Not husbands become the head of your wife, or husbands should be the head of their wives, but the husband is the head of his wife, the indicative statement. And all else that we say flows out from that theological reality. Secondly, we noted that a husband's authority is covenantal. That a husband's authority is covenantal. That was our second Characteristic. And what we meant by that is that a, a particular man, 
assumes the responsibility of leadership authority over a particular woman when he and she exchange vows. When they pledge their loyalty and declare their respective responsibilities to one another in the covenant of marriage. The husband's authority is covenantal. Third, third, the husband's authority is reflective. The husband's authority is reflective. And what we meant by that is that the model for the husband's exercise of his authority is Christ. And you see that repeatedly in the passage here, where it's as Christ or so also Christ. The husband's authority is reflective of Christ. Christ is the original. We are the reflection. Fourth, the husband's authority is primary. The husband's authority is primary. What we meant by that is because the husband is the one who initiates the covenant, and we see the reality of that in that he makes his marital vow first, and his wife responds, or his, his fiancée responds to his vow with hers. Thus, he bears the primary responsibility for the state of the marriage. Now, that doesn't mean that a wife does not bear personal and individual responsibility for her own sin, for she does. Nor does it mean that she has no authority in the marriage. But what we mean by this is that in the final analysis, because the man is the initiator of this covenant, in the final analysis, he must take whatever action is necessary to grow and strengthen his marriage and not slough off his responsibilities to his wife. His authority is primary. Primary. Fifth, a husband's authority is loving. A husband's authority is loving. And what we meant by that is that his authority is patterned after the relationship of father with the son, for whom the father is the head of the son and initiator of the love of the son. The son is the beloved. That the son is the head and initiator of love for the church. The church responds to the son's initiative, and thus the husband is the head and initiator of the love of his wife, and she responds to that. The husband's authority is loving, patterned after the work or, or, or the, the relationship within the triune God. But what that means is that a, that a husband's love must be tender, a husband's love must be knowledgeable, and a husband's love must be effectual. In other words, to promote the moral purity of his bride. A husband's love, or a husband's authority is loving. Sixth, a husband's authority is sacrificial. A husband's authority is sacrificial. A husband uses his authority to serve his wife in the various spheres of the marriage and the home. A husband's authority is to serve his wife in the various spheres of the marriage and the home. His authority is a sacrificial authority. Seventh, a husband's authority is protective. A husband's authority is protective. In other words, that a husband uses his authority to protect his wife rather than take advantage of her. 
And he protects her physically, spiritually, and emotionally. His authority is a protective authority. Eight, a husband's authority is life-giving. A husband's authority is life-giving. In other words, when a husband cares for his wife, he is to do so as he would naturally and tenderly care for his own body. This is the pattern, Paul says, by which he ought to care for his wife. Why? Because she is his body. They have become one flesh through the covenant of marriage. His authority is to be life-giving. Nine, a husband's authority is convicting. A husband's authority is convicting. When a Christian husband contemplates the weightiness of his God-assigned authority, he becomes convicted of his own sin and shortcomings in the area of marriage. He recognizes that he does not love and serve like Christ. He is convicted by his failures. And that leads us, tenth, to the husband's authority is sanctifying. It is sanctifying. Because the Spirit uses his word to convict husbands of their shortcomings and their sins, then we as husbands are driven back upon the gospel of grace. We are driven back to the cross of Christ where we receive forgiveness and the courage to begin again. And it is this sanctifying process that the Spirit uses to make us like Christ. To make us like Christ. As I said last time, if you want to be like Christ, don't get married. If you want to be like Christ, get married get married. Eleventh, the eleventh characteristic. A husband's authority is illustrative. A husband's authority is illustrative. Now you're going to have to think with me on this one because there's a there's a theological argument that Paul is making here in this passage. Picking it up here, um, the end of verse 29, where Paul says, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Verses 30, 31, and 32 here are a bit of a digression, a bit of a digression by Paul in his ongoing discussion of the husband's role of, in the marriage. And Paul takes this digression in order to elaborate upon this, the mystery of Christ and the church. All throughout this section, Paul has been weaving back and forth between Christ and the church and the, and the husband and his wife. And it's gone back and forth and back and forth. But now, beginning here really in verse 30, 
he will take this little digression, this little sidestep, and he'll return in verse 33 to close things up, but he'll take this little sidestep in order to establish a very, very significant theological point. And it goes like this. Because we are members of Christ's body, so Christ cares for us in the same way that anyone would naturally care for his own body. That's the argument here at the end of verse 29, right? Verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So because we are members of the body of Christ, Christ cares for us in a, in a way that, that, a, that one would naturally care for their own body. Then Paul says in verse 31, for this reason. And then he begins to quote Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, where the original and first marriage is narrated for us by Moses, and where the, the reason that is given is in verse 18 of chapter 2 of Genesis, that it is not good for a man to be alone. Paul's de- or excuse me, God's declaration upon Adam's singleness. It is not good for a man to be alone. And so the Lord God forms a woman from the rib of the man, right? And brings her to him. And so here, verse 31 is a, is a quotation there of verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the original reason given by God for marriage. Not good for a man to be alone. But here's what Paul does with this quote, and this is where it's really interesting, I think. He looks beyond the, the original statement, the original reason of human flourishing, and he looks even deeper, and he, and he sees a deeper reason why a man leaves his parents and, and is joined to his wife And the reason, Paul says, is because we are members of Christ's body. Verse 30. Because we are members of his body for this reason, Paul says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He calls his insight into this this deeper theological truth a mystery, verse 32. He says, this mystery is great. This mystery is great. Now, this understanding of what Paul is saying here, this interpretation of what Paul is saying here is is pretty plain, I think, because when you look at the rest of verse 32, this mystery is great. What mystery, Paul? I'm I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. That mystery. That mystery. Then down to verse 33, Paul says, Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even himself, his wife to see to it she respects her husband. Paul leaves the digression, comes back to the topic of marriage again. So, what is he doing? What is he doing here? Paul, in in citing Genesis 2 and verse 24, and particularly the end of it, you see there at the end of verse 31, the two shall become one flesh. Paul is using 
in a twofold sense. He's using it first in verse 28 to support the reality that a husband ought to love his wife as himself. Why? Because they are one flesh. They have come together in marriage. They have become one flesh. But he goes beyond that, deeper than that, and I would say even more significantly and importantly than that, the reason that the two become one flesh is, is a reference to the fact that the church and Christ become one. This is the mystery. This is the, the deep mystery in Moses' words. Now think with me for a moment. In the letter here to the church of the Ephesians, the word mystery is used a number of times. It's used, for example, over in chapter 1 and, and verse 9, where it says, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. What is a mystery? A mystery was something that was previously unknown but has now been disclosed, has now been revealed. You look at chapter 3, in verses 3 and 4, Paul says that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, you can read, uh, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Down to verse 9, where it says, To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. And then over to chapter 6 and verse 19. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So what is the mystery that Paul is referring to here? This mystery is great. Verse 32, what is this mystery he's talking about? When he uses the terminology mystery, he is referring to the, the plan of God to reconcile Jew and Gentile together on equal footing in, the, in Christ as the body of Christ. Equal access to God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the mystery. This mystery was predestined by the Father before the foundation of the world back in chapter 1 and verse 4. Right? So, so this mystery was in the mind of God and established by God before he even brought the creation into existence. It is accomplished in space and time through the death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension of Christ the Son. And so here, when Paul is referring to that mystery back in verse 31, I believe what he is, he is saying is he is looking at the first marriage and he is saying that, that in that first marriage, God instituted it because of the church being the body of Christ. Okay, let me say it again. Verse 31, what Paul is saying here is that God instituted marriage because the church is Christ's body. What this means, if this is true, if our understanding here of what Paul is saying is true, then what this means is that marriage illustrates a very deep reality. Something that, that 
God predestined before he formed the world and, and obviously before he created man and before he created Eve and the first marriage and all the rest of that is that the, it was in the mind of God that Christ and his church would be together as one body. Just like the husband's headship is unavoidable, verse 23, marriage unavoidably paints a picture of the gospel. Practically speaking, what does it mean to you and I? It means that marriage is not first and foremost about our happiness, but a marriage is first and foremost about the glory of God. It is about the glory of God. Why did God invent marriage? It is to bring glory to Christ. It is to bring glory to Christ. Derivatively, it, it produces human flourishing, and it is a wonderful gift of God, but it is not its primary purpose. Man, that changes everything about how we understand our marriages. It changes everything about how a Christian man, and a Christian woman for that matter, view their marriage. By virtue of God's design, we cannot refrain from speaking about Christ and the church. We cannot refrain. That's why I said at the beginning, men, we are preachers, all of us. We cannot refrain from preaching. When you got married, you became a preacher. You became maybe a lot of other things too, but you became a preacher. You became a preacher. If we faithfully and lovingly and sacrificially serve our wives, then we communicate accurately how Christ faithfully loves and sacrificially serves his bride, the church. But if we are self-absorbed, if we are neglectful, if we are harsh, if we are detached as husbands, then we communicate that that's how Christ behaves towards his church. And that would be blasphemy. That would be blasphemy. Every marriage, every marriage paints a picture of Christ and the church. Now that could be discouraging for sure. It could be very discouraging. Maybe you're sitting out there and you're thinking, I've not painted a very good picture. Well, let me say to you this. The gospel provides the hope. The gospel provides the hope of replacing what the locusts have eaten. If you've painted an inaccurate picture of Christ and the church, if, if this great mystery that, that God has woven into the very foundation of society, if you've done a poor job, you are not without hope. You would turn back to Christ and begin again. The husband's authority is illustrative. It illustrates Christ in the church. Number 12. A husband's authority is evangelistic. A husband's authority is evangelistic. 
The vision of Christian marriage that, that Paul has been painting here, beginning in verse 22, is otherworldly. It is an otherworldly understanding. It is not the normal experience of most people. For most people, when they get married, it's about meeting my needs. It's about giving so I get in return. I think you could say for many men that, that marriage could be summed up with happy wife, happy life. And so that is their focus. How do I keep her happy? For some, they abdicate their authority in order to keep peace in their home. But let me tell you, if you do that, you will not find peace in your home. You will be frustrated, and she will be frustrated with you. Other men indulge their wives materially. Happy wife, happy life, right? Give her what she wants. And then use that as an excuse to indulge themselves. But Paul's vision of marriage here is, is much different. It is, a, it is a display of the sacrificial love of Christ for his bride, and it is so different, so contrary, that people can't help but notice it. People cannot help but notice it. If you begin, men, to love your wife like Christ loves the church, people are going to notice. And as they notice, they're going to ask you questions. They are going to ask questions. And as you answer their questions as to why you sacrificially love your wife and why she respectfully submits to your leadership, then we can naturally speak about the change that Christ has wrought in our lives, right? You can say, this is not something I came to on my own, and I don't do this by my own strength. Listen, I can do this only in dependence on Christ. And so you can begin to talk about Christ, and you begin to talk about Christ in the church. Now, this is dependent upon us opening up our lives and our homes to others, right, so that they can observe us. We never have anybody in our home, we never are around unbelieving people, then they, they don't know, they don't see what sacrificial love looks like what respectful submission looks like. They just don't have any witness to it. But if we open up our lives to people, we begin to invite into our lives our children's school teachers, maybe their music teacher, their sports coach, their, your neighbors, maybe extended family members, your coworkers. They begin to come into your home and they begin to see your home is different. Different. Even fellow Christians who are, who, are, who are new to the faith, perhaps, or, or just coming to, to terms with understanding what it means to be a Christian husband or, or a Christian wife, they can grow tremendously by observing you as you sacrificially love your wife and as your wife respectfully follows your leadership. They observe and have a chance to speak with them about these things, and the Spirit will use that and as a sanctifying message in their lives, and, and it will draw them deeper and deeper into the gospel. Don't discount the value of your home to evangelistically impact society. 
But it means you've got to open it up. You've got to open it up, and you've got to open up your, your lives to, for people's inspection. A husband's authority is evangelistic. Thirteen. A husband's authority is stabilizing. A husband's authority is stabilizing. The American home is in serious trouble. Serious, serious trouble. And with it, the overall societal help, health of this country is in danger. We now have generational broken marriages. Single mothers, absentee fathers. And this has produced conditions in which poverty and substance abuse and childhood trauma are thriving. In response to these conditions, the federal government has stepped in. They have stepped into the void and they now act as surrogate husbands. And they try to provide for the vulnerable. While this substitution of husbands may provide a measure of temporary relief, its, it's long-run implications are and effects are that it is elbowing men to the sidelines and is further reinforcing male antisocial behavior. Beloved, what was once the scourge of the inner cities has now become a growing rural plague. Drug addiction, unemployment, broken homes, out-of-wedlock children has reached epidemic proportions among white males age 0 to 50. The problems of the inner city and, and black men has now become the problems of rural America and white men. Our culture is disintegrating. And it is disintegrating because men are no longer found in their homes. And the antidote to this social destruction of broken marriage is the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When men are regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God and they place their faith in the finished work of Christ, then they receive the, the spiritual power and the motivation to begin to change their lives. No longer do they seek merely temporal pleasure, but they now begin to emulate Christ as Savior. And one place where this shows up is the very basis of human society, which is marriage itself. Godly husbands, sacrificially loving and serving their wives, provides the stable home environment, regardless of income levels. It is not an income problem. And those that don't, their homes are vulnerable regardless of the size of the paycheck. The predictor of the stability of the home and society at large is where is dad? 
Where is the husband? We need godly fathers who teach their sons how to lovingly lead a woman by example. Then their sons will recognize that a woman is God's wonderful creation and image bearer, not an object to be used to satisfy their own unholy desires and ambitions. Men, as your sons watch you lovingly serve and lead your wife, they learn what it means to be a godly man and a godly husband. They are watching. We need Christian fathers who teach their daughters by word and deed what godly male love and affection really looks like. So they do not seek substitutes from other men whose motives may well be less than pure. Your daughters will learn from you, from you. People talk about social justice. People talk about social justice. I believe the greatest social justice movement would be for Christian husbands to begin to take seriously their roles and their responsibilities within their marriage and their home. This will change society. This will change society. We will begin to recapture Paul's gospel vision of a Christian marriage in a Christian home and it will be put on public display. But it begins with us, guys. It begins with us. A husband's authority is stabilizing. And his failure is destabilizing. 14. A husband's authority is attractive. A husband's authority is attractive. God has woven his wisdom into the creation. Proverbs 8, 22 to 31. And that wisdom is continually speaking for those who have ears to hear. The marriage relationship is one of the venues through which the wisdom of God pours forth. And when it is received with a heart of faith, it is very, very attractive. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech, night to night it reveals knowledge. Listen, just as the heavens declare the glory of God, so Christian marriage declares His glory. People look in the heavens and they don't see it. But it's there. People look at Paul's vision for Christian marriage and, and they don't see the glory of it, but it's there. This is a countercultural message. There was a countercultural message when Paul gave it. Nothing has changed. 
We should not expect people to, to come and, and grasp it with open arms. The problems are spiritual. They are blind to the reality of this. And that blindness is only overcome in Christ. The roles and responsibilities were established by God in the beginning. And if we can't see the glory of it, if it's not attractive to us, the problem lies with us and not with God's plan. Remember years ago, visiting the Grand Canyon. And there, right at the end of the day, we, we, we walked to the edge of the canyon and, and, and there was a crowd of people and everyone was talking and, and telling jokes and just, just general crowd noise. And, and then the sun began to set upon the wall of the, of the canyon and a, and a hush and an awe came over the crowd. The glory of God was on display and, and even the pagans could see it for a moment. The glory of God in Christian marriages is like the sunset in the Grand Canyon. If you don't think it's beautiful, the deficiency is yours, not the sunsets. With those who have eyes to see and hearts to believe, they cannot help but be drawn to this. When I was a child, I had a toy called an Etch-a-Sketch. An Etch-a-Sketch, you remember that? It was invented in 1960, brought to market in 1960. For the price of $2.99, by the way. Now costs $25, okay? Same toy. That's a whole nother discussion of what has happened to the value of your money, huh? But in any case, it was brought to market in 1960, and it immediately became a very popular toy. In fact, it went on to be recognized as one of the top 100 most memorable and creative toys of the 20th century. It's really a kind of an amazing device, right? For those young ones maybe who don't know, there's, a, there's two little knobs and there's a stylus that moves on an XY axis and there's a, there's a screen of glass that is somehow magnetized and it has this, this metal powder on it and as you turn the, the dials, the stylus moves around underneath the glass and kind of scrapes away the, 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 uh, the powder or the dust and it leaves an impression on the glass and you can draw a picture. And if you're really good, you can figure out how to turn the knobs and draw a circle but it's super hard. And when you're done drawing the picture, if you mess it up, you can, you can just flip the thing over and you shake it and it reapplies the, the powder or the dust to the screen and then you flip it back over and you can start all over again. So why do I bring all this up? I bring all this up because the Christian life is kind of like an etcher sketch. There's no limit to the number of times, beloved, we can redraw the picture here. 
We've messed up. All of us have messed up. There's no one here that can, can stand and say, I've got this nailed. 14, is that all you got? But by the power of the Spirit, right? Let your eye go back up again. Verse 18, that's where this all flows out of. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be continually filled by the Spirit of God. And we are continually filled by the Spirit of God as we are filled with the Word of God, which does the work of transforming us into the image of Christ. When we screw it up, we can start again. We come back to Christ. And we say, I've messed up. I have sinned. I have not loved my wife as Christ loves his church. I have not served her. I have not sacrificed for her. I have used her for my own glory. Forgive me. Strengthen me to Try again. And wives, it's true for you too. Or you have fallen short, and you have. You too can come back. Give it a shake and start again. But beloved, it can't just stay as good intentions. We can't just come out of this sermon series and say, yeah, wow, man, that was, I learned a lot, or oh, I was convicted. And then nothing changes. Nothing changes. Just good intentions. May God strengthen and enable us to follow through. That we might be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Let's pray. Our Father, the vision of Christian marriage that Paul has presented to us here, where he has lifted it out of mere human relationships and interactions. He has lifted it above the pragmatic of what works, what gets us by, what, what prevents us from just squabbling and, and enables us to live with a relative peace. And, and he so ennobles it by delving deep into the, into the mystery of it all, that you have created marriage to display the glory of Christ in the church. It has been your plan from the beginning, from before the foundation of the earth. And you created human marriage from the very beginning that goes across all time and all society that there is a living witness of the gospel of Christ everywhere? It is like the heavens that declare the glory of God. 
the sun that shines, the, the stars that twinkle. It is everywhere to be seen. If we have but eyes to see. Dear Father, we confess that we are guilty of marring that image, of, of blurring the picture by our failure to understand and by our failure to do. We confess that we often have approached our own marriages as to how to best serve ourselves, how to arrange things so that our spouse would make our life easier. rather than to seek to serve and to follow our Savior in that. And Father, as we have studied together here over these past few months, there has been more than enough conviction for all of us and there's been enough to crush us. And I pray that you would crush us that you might rebuild us in Christ. Drive us to the gospel, O Lord. Let us abandon our own strength, our own puny wisdom, our own sinful longings. And give us a gospel glimpse that would revolutionize our marriage, our homes, and our society. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. Beloved, we now turn, beginning next week, inside the family to husbands or fathers and children. So come back, come back.